and he had cut the offered price in half. The man sold. Cedar Bluff and Cedar Valley lived under the eye of King Bill. A strong man and an able one, Hale had slowly become power-mad. The valley was cut off from both New Mexico and Arizona. In his own world, he could not be touched. His will was law. He owned the Mecca, a saloon and gambling house. He owned the stage station, the stage line itself, and the freight company that hauled supplies in and produce out. He owned the Cedar Hotel, the town's one decent rooming house. He owned 60,000 acres of good grazing land and controlled 100,000 more. His cattle were numbered in the tens of thousands, and two men rode beside him when he went among his other men. One was rough, hard-scaled Pete Shaw, and the other was his younger son, Cub Hale. Behind him trailed the gold-dust twins, Dunn and Rabbits, both gunmen. The man who called himself Trent rarely visited Cedar Bluff. Sooner or later, he knew there would be someone from the outside, someone who knew him, someone who would recognize him for what and who he was. And then the word would go out, That's Kilkenny. Men would turn to look, for the story of the strange, drifting gunman was known to all in the West, even though there were few men anywhere who knew him by sight, few who could describe him or knew the way he lived. Mysterious, solitary, and shadowy, the gunman called Kilkenny had been everywhere. He drifted in and out of towns and cow camps, and sometimes there would be a brief and bloody gun battle, and then Kilkenny would be gone again and only the body of the man who had dared to try Kilkenny remained. So Kilkenny had taken the name of Trent, and in the high peaks he had found the lush green valley where he built his cabin and ran a few head of cows and broke wild horses. It was a lonely life, but when he was there, he hung his guns on a peg and carried only his rifle, and that for game or for wolves. Rarely, not over a dozen times in the year, he went down to Cedar Bluff for supplies, packed them back, and stayed in the hills until he was running short again. He stayed away from the Mecca, and most of all he avoided the Crystal Palace, the new and splendid dance hall and gambling house owned by the woman, Nita Reardon. The cabin in the pines was touched with the red glow of a sun setting beyond the notch, and he swung down from the buckskin and slapped the horse cheerfully on the shoulder. Home again, Buck. It's a good feeling, isn't it? He stripped the saddle and bridle from the horse and carried them into the log barn. Then he turned the buckskin into the corral and forked over a lot of fresh green grass. It was a lonely life, yet he was content. Only at times did he find himself looking long at the stars and thinking about the girl in Cedar Bluff. Did she know he was here? Remembering Nita from the live oak country, he decided she did. Nita Reardon knew all that was going on. She always had. He went about the business of preparing a meal and thought of Parson Hatfield and his tall sons. What would the mountaineer do now? Yet need he ask that question? Could he suspect, even for a moment, that the Hatfields would do anything but fight?
They were the type. They were men who had always built with their hands and who were beholden to no man. They were not gunfighters, but they were lean, hard-faced men, tall and stooped a little, who carried their rifles as if they were part of them. And Big Dan O'Hara, the talkative, friendly Irishman who always acted as though campaigning for public office. Could he believe that Dan would do other than fight? War was coming to the high peaks, and Trent's face grew somber as he thought of it. War meant that he would once more be shooting, killing. He could, of course, mount in the morning and ride away. He could give up this place in the highlands and go once more, but even as the thought came to him, he did not recognize it as even a remote possibility. Like O'Hara and the Hatfields, he would fight. There were other things to...